Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, see Pam Jong's new novel is set in a world that's struggling. After smog blocks the sun, killing crops and livestock, and plunging the world into famine. A world was gone, the chef protagonist recalls. Goodbye to the person I'd been, to she who'd abandoned, half-eaten, a plate of carnitas under blaze of California sun. We'll talk with Zhang about how she sees us reacting to a world of darkness and food scarcity, given our culture of excess, and why she still has faith in humanity. Zhang's new book is called Land of Milk and Honey. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Si Pam Zhang's new novel is called Land of Milk and Honey, But it's set in a very deprived dark world, where there are, quote, no more lemon trees fragrant on the slopes of Greece, no more sugar cane striping Vietnam, no more small, sweet Indian mangoes. In Zhang's book, a smog that began spreading from a cornfield in the U.S. has blotted out the sun, killing plants and animals, and causing widespread famine. Zhang writes, scientists bickered over the smog's composition, and politicians over whether pollution or lax carbon taxes or China or nuclear testing or America or Russia were to blame. And all the while the darkness, slightly acidic, ate its way through fertile fields. Pam Zhang joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Hi, Mina. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you on too, Pam. I think what makes that description that I read so beautiful, but also so chilling is the fact that I think it's something that we can imagine happening, (laughs) something that feels just a little too plausible with the threat of climate change. And I imagine that's what you were going for, right? Something that felt like, yes, this could be very far away or not too far off. Yeah, I like to say that I think the timeline of the book is either zero to 36 months from now. So (laughs) it feels like it could be imminent. And certainly a great part of the inspiration behind the opening scene of the book was going through wildfire season in California and Ah. in the Pacific Northwest for years and years and years. Yeah, and all the smoke that it created. And yes. Mm, then we had that wonderful orange sky day in the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things where you can't really describe it to someone who hasn't lived through it, right? The just 
emotional toll it takes on you to walk outdoors and see something that you had taken for granted that the sky would be blue that you would be able to see a cloud that you would be able to see the sun to have that taken away is deeply unsettling oh yes so deeply unsettling and in this particular book the protagonist you create is a chef um Mm. A world mm-hmm. where there's no biodiversity, really, um, and essentially the world has become an entire food desert. You place a chef living in the UK, but from California, who once knew the bounty of California's incredible agricultural land. That's a pretty intense, Pam. Yeah, um, it's funny, as you're saying that, I realized that I'm living in New York these days, and I had my own kind of awakening to the fact that produce is just not as good once you leave that sort of salad bowl of California. So that part is also real to some extent. So tell us about our chef and sort of the state she's in when the book opens. I mentioned that she's in the UK, um, but, uh, but that she is in fact from California, but she's not able to get back there when all of this happens. So, so what is she doing? Our chef is 29 years old, and she is Chinese and Korean American. And prior to the start of the novel, her entire life had been predicated on her own ambition and upon her sort of adherence to her art, because she certainly thinks of cooking as a form of art, as a form of self-expression. And so at the beginning of the book, she is stranded in Europe, where she had once gone for job opportunities because this global famine, this global smog has caused a lot of countries to become very nativist and to also close their borders. And in fact, America, in order to sort of keep its dwindling resources um, for itself, has even started to question what it means to be a citizen, perhaps. Um, They've started to question if you can define that by how many generations back your family goes and whether even citizens can be left out. So it is really this time of shrinking resources leading to a kind of redefinition of who is in the in-group and who is in the out-group, which I think we see a lot in times of crisis. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, if there are any world war- real-world experiences you were drawing from to, to create that conclusion in terms of how we would respond, or also just the fact that you wrote this during the pandemic at a time when you know something really did upend our lives and people reacted in very different ways. I have a lot of loved ones, friends and family who have gone through the horrors of the immigration system, um, this this system that really treats people as slow moving numbers without much empathy and that often feels quite arbitrary. Um, I've known people who are sort of at that agonizing point at which they're kind of trapped in between immigration statuses and they can't leave the country for fear of sort of resetting the clock on their immigration and they have loved ones that are continents and continents away. That was certainly a part of it. And also, thinking back, I realized that I wrote this um, in the early part of 2021, you know, deep, deep pandemic. And something that was also going on at the time was, if you you think back, food became very important to a lot of our lives because there was so little else. Um, It really took an outsized importance. And at the same time, there was this rise in anti-Asian hate crimes that were happening in the U.S., um, which were pretty directly attributed to, you know, 
using China and Chinese folk as a scapegoat for the coronavirus. And it was this interesting moment in which I was watching people continue to rely on Chinese food to talk about their love of eating out as this sort of way to to step outside their own lives. And yet that love for Chinese American food really did not protect Chinese American bodies or bodies that were coded as Chinese American. And that that interesting hypocrisy just really started to you know, like tap at the edges of my brain. Um, yes. I was, it, it's so interesting to me how much of the sort of big issues that we talk about in our culture about like race and class and climate change can sometimes be boiled down to a plate or a plate can be a wonderful starting point to talk about those topics. Yeah. It's also amazing on the flip side, how food has been weaponized mm. to be used as, you know, <laughs> basically an excuse for racist treatment of other people as well, um, Asian foods in particular, gosh. But yes, much of it boils down to the plate. We're talking with Sipam Zhang about her novel Land of Milk and Honey, which really imagines a pretty dystopian future or near future, in fact, where a smog has blotted out the sun and plunged the world into famine. And listeners, I'm just curious how you think we would react? How would you personal, re- personally react and how you think society or governments would respond? Zhang has one version. Maybe you agree. Email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Of course, in this world that you create in Land of Milk and Honey, the uber-rich are able to still have access to some fresh foods, right? And uh, well, we'll talk about what is the rest of the world basically eating in your in your <laughs> world? <laughs> Um, it's really delightful to be talking <laughs> to you based over there in San Francisco because they're eating, for the most part, this meal replacement made out of a mostly mung protein soy flour that I imagine to be kind of like Soylent, <laughs> that drink that became so popular in San Francisco tech circles. <laughs> and so while they're all doing this, uh, there are these pockets that have this access to this incredible bounty potentially of of other foods and meats and so on. And so your chef makes a big decision. Can you talk about that decision to basically, I think, because she wants access to this food so much, almost compromise her own morals? Yeah, so she takes on this job at a mysterious mountaintop colony at the border of Italy and France, where she really knows nothing about her employer employers other than that they have access to the world's last fresh produce, some of its last animal species, and they want someone who can cook whole French cuisine um, and sort of perpetuate this kind of fantasy land that is on this mountaintop, even as the rest of the world is plunged into grayness. And the chef... um, kind of just thinks of this move as a survival move, right? She's at such a desperate point at the opening of the book that she will take any rope that is uh, flung down towards her. And in order to do so, she has to lie. She has to lie about her qualifications in order to get this job. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about being in a situation or in the types of situations that does make us compromise that you explored in this book? Oh, yeah. So uh, the chef is, you know, as I said, Chinese and Korean-American. She's a woman, and she's a woman working in the service industry. It's a very, very narrow place to operate in, certainly in our world, and even more so in this distressed world of my novel. Um, I think that most of us, frankly, who occupy any of those identities, to some extent, mold ourselves to conform to job expectations, to societal expectations, right? I give the example of very rarely is a woman the same person at work in a professional environment where she's being paid for a certain set of skills as she is at home or among her friends. Um, and so we, we all understand these kinds of small compromises you make in order to survive. And I think that we become inured to them. Um, they're so common that we just kind of take it as for granted that that's what we need to do on a daily basis. And so I was really interested in this speculative fiction environment of my novel and taking that idea to an extreme. What does seeing a woman do in the extreme where she actually lies about her qualifications and later on in the book is uh, made to told even more skewering and destructive lies? What does that do to your sense of self over time? Is there sort of a limit to to that? Yeah. So Pam Zhang's novel is Land of Milk and Honey. And you may know, Pam, from How Much of These Hills is Gold. We actually had her on forum for this. It was a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award and longlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize. Uh, that same year, Zhang was named a National Book Foundation 535 honoree. This book is very different from How Much of These Hills is Gold. It's about a smog that blocks the sun, killing 98% of commercial crops and 12% of the human human population in famine, and it raises ethical questions about food and also about pleasure amid the climate crisis. And we will have more with Pam and with you after the break. Tell us, how do you think you would respond if the novel's premise was a reality for us? What would you eat or where would you go for for a phenomenal ingredient or flavor, especially if you were living in such scarcity? Would it be comfort food? Would it be a three-star Michelin restaurant? Tell us after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with C. Pam Zhang about her new novel, Land of Milk and Honey. And uh, you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions or comments. The novel's premise is a world plunged into darkness and food scarcity. How do you think you would react or how do you think we as a society would respond? What's your comfort food? What food or meal would you miss most if you you are considering that it could potentially be lost in the climate crisis? The email address forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord at KQED Forum. Call us 866-733-6786. Regina tweets, fresh veggies. I have a sprouting kit around with a mix of seeds. Kai tweets, I think I it'd be a long list. Burritos, burritos, and burritos. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right answer. <laughs> right, I know, right? <laughs> it does tend to be on a lot of people's lists. Um, well, can I have you read from Land of Milk and Honey for us? And uh, there's this excerpt actually where you describe the chef protagonist and how she grew up. Um, but is there anything else you want to say before you read it? No, I think let's just plunge into it. When I say I grew up in Los Angeles, I mean that I grew up in a constellation of little-known satellite towns at the center of which Los Angeles, glitz, Hollywood, beach-toned blondes, revolves. In Pasaje, California, my mother and I lived by fields of lettuce and strawberries and almonds that fed the dream. In picking season, the growers paid extra for every pair of hands, and so if money was tight, If my mother took on night shifts at the nursing home, then she, too, could join the migrant laborers in the rows. In picking season, we ate for weeks like the wealthy, bushel after bushel of prime fruit. It was economical. Strawberries and syrup, strawberries and rice, strawberries in vinegar and chilies and oil, as juice, as mash, as soup. Strawberries eaten to excess in a race against the burning, punishing springs, during which workers felt a heat stroke and the sun was a terror, not a dream, and still they sprayed the field with pesticides and clawed what they could from the land until it dried and withered, ready to burst into flame. Strawberries sat abandoned in the fields by season's end, so ripe as to be barely solid, warm as heart's blood. Ambrosia, they call that variety, the food of gods. But the hubris of excess has mortal consequences. You can go blind, mad, drown in red. The second nature of strawberries is a sugar that turns to rot. The hubris of excess has mortal consequences. Pam, you have talked about working in tech, and I Mm. was wondering if you were accessing that experience when you were talking about the hubris of excess? (laughs) Um, I certainly think tech is one place that you can point to for the hubris of excess. I think more particularly in this book, I was zooming out a little bit and thinking about the agricultural industrial complex in California and in America and the hubris of that, right? Um, This idea that we can create these vast monocultures and that we can force market demand for crops not because necessarily they're needed or wanted in the case of, you know, the corn industry, but because we have just decided that financially we must do this and therefore we can do this. Um, Sort of just like kind of pummeling the natural world around us into a shape that we think is best. Um, That was on my mind as well. But I think in general, in this book, in the world, I'm, I'm less interested in pointing a finger at a particular industry, but just at this 
deep-set human desire to find something to control and something to have faith in. I think that can be found in tech and it can be found in agriculture. It can even be found in science. It can be found in religion. Um, there are all of, all sorts of forms that hubris takes. Yeah. Mm, this deep-set need to control. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you were, though, kind of pointing at or making us look a little bit at how intense our food culture has become or how much mm. of a status marker food has become, you know? Um. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. And that's certainly true of the Bay Area, which was the place where I, as someone who grew up deeply impoverished and almost never was able to eat out, the San Francisco was the place where I ate my first Michelin-starred meal. Um I think that food has certainly become a status marker, and it's really interesting to me because this has become true, I think, of many art forms, um, of literature, of forms like ballet, of theater. But in food, the sort of hypocrisy at the heart of it becomes much clearer because on the other end of the spectrum, food is literally a necessity that everyone needs to put in their mouth um, at some cost. And so I think when you look at the disparities between the high and the low on the plate, it's much easier to see sort of how warped and crazy the far end has become. Well, the listener writes, no way I'm going to a Michelin star restaurant to pay a lot for a tiny plate. <laughs> if the world was ending, I plan on eating in and out. <laughs> that's interesting. In and out is act. Yeah, go ahead. I know. And so that's a, that's a beautiful answer. And I would say that I, I do still love certain Michelin-starred meals, and I think it is because I see it as art on a plate, right? Mm. Um, and art is something that is incredibly hard to put a price on, though people certainly still do put a price on it. And, and if you think about that, if you think about less the, you know, the calories or the size of the food on the plate and more what kinds of intangible nourishments are you getting from it, right? Is the chef telling a story? Is the chef able to evoke some memory from their past, some particular plot of earth, some some particular year in, from their childhood, and so recall you to a moment that was important to yourself? Can you put a price on that? Yeah. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the first meal you did eat out during the pandemic, like when you allowed yourself outdoors to a restaurant, because I understand you, you waited a while, like you tried to make sure that that you could do this as safely as possible. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a very cherished memory for me. Um, as I said, I wrote started writing this book in early 2021. I was still locked down, wasn't yet vaccinated, was trying to keep very safe. And it can feel strange some, sometimes to call this book a pandemic novel because that implies that it is all like grimness and grayness and doom. But for me, this book is really an ode to the importance of pleasure, yes. um, the centrality of pleasure in our lives as a resource that we can draw upon that allows us to survive and to also you know, share pleasure and joy with other people in our communities. And so for me, that moment was eating my first meal out at a Filipino restaurant 
called Musang in Seattle, where I was living at the time. And I was meeting an old friend of mine who was a doctor. And so you can only imagine how difficult his year had been, the kinds of things that he had seen. And I remember when we first sat down, we were very much still in our anxious brains, right? We were catching up over the facts of what had transpired in the last few months, and it sounded very heavy and dark. And then there was the moment when the food arrived at the table. And it wasn't as if those other concerns ceased to exist. We would go back to them. We would go back to the seriousness of our lives. But in that exact moment when we were smelling it, we had no choice but to be plunged back right into our own bodies. We had to be animals. We had to be human animals again. And it was seeing the kind of simple pleasure, the kind of ecstatic and whole body joy that this meal brought to the face of someone I cared about, someone who had worked so hard, someone who certainly deserved these moments of of beauty. That made me kind of turn the question outwards and then back on myself too. Like, don't we all deserve this kind of pleasure, especially in a world that feels like it's closing off? And don't I deserve this too? And, And it's a question that kind of haunts this book. This question of who deserves pleasure? Do we all deserve pleasure? Um, and what does what does pleasure even mean to each of us individually? And what kinds of pleasure are sustainable as a culture? Yeah, the the importance of pleasure and the need to take it seriously. I'm curious what. Well, maybe just in asking the question, like, did you feel like? or grapple with at the beginning, whether that was that was an important and worthy question. Oh, yes. Right? Grappled with it at the beginning then, but also I think for my entire life. Um, <laughs> here's the thing, right? I, during the pandemic, felt myself to be insignificant in the face of the larger issues at play in the world. And I, as many people I know did, threw myself into activism and raising money for people who were more in need and, uh, you know, just like trying to give back at a time of global darkness. And that those are not I'm happy I did those things. But the problem there was I, at the same time, became quite ashamed almost of having a body that kept asking for things that I was then considering frivolous, right? Wanting to go out for a meal and having a drink with a friend, wishing I could just like get on a plane and travel. But it became clear to me that what we called essentials during the pandemic, you know, food, shelter, water, our health, those are essential to surviving from day to day, week by week, month to month. But as a person who suffers from depression, you need pleasure, you need joy, you need beauty, you need art to continue to survive for the many long decades that we have to be on this earth, right? You need to give meaning to all those other things. And I will also say that I came to realize, too, that the people I knew in my life who were beating themselves up the most about having a moment of joy were often women, because I think that female pleasure specifically is coded as inherently suspect and decadent and silly, right? It's something like facile and it has no depth. Um, But in fact, I've come around to that and understood that, especially in a planet where it feels like things are getting harder every day, 
to insist on pleasure, to insist on hope, to insist on the importance of art and optimism is not facile. It's incredibly complex and ferocious to define for yourself a kind of joy that is pulled out of the ashes. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. Um, and I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, our right to pleasure, and also you, I think in an interview, talked about how, especially for women, it's easier, easier for us to see when somebody else needs something than to see it mm-hmm. in ourselves and give it the same value that it mm-hmm. deserves. Yeah, certainly. And I also want to just say, you know, on that note of how do we define pleasure, I think the the way our capitalist consumerist society wants us to define it is that it is luxury or decadence, right? Um, I think many of us, when we think of like pleasures that we can have, you sort of picture that billboard uh, image of a white sand, blue, blue beach vacation, right? Or you picture like a certain kind of house or car. Um, and those kinds of images have been quite literally implanted into our heads. But when I talk to the people I most admire in the world, and when I really sit down and I'm honest with myself, my personal forms of pleasure very rarely look like those billboards. They're often smaller things. They're more intimate things. They're, you know, like sharing a walk with a friend and having a particularly enriching type of conversation or learning something small and new about the world. And I think that insistence on defining for oneself what pleasure is, that question of what do you want when nobody else is watching when the world is impressing on onto you is such an intellectually rich and important question to keep asking oneself over the course of a lifetime. We're talking with C. Pam Zhang, writer in her new novel is Land of Milk and Honey. Your chef protagonist is unnamed in the book and early on is, is essentially has to be invisible like a stand-in mm. for another Asian woman, which, you know, the experience of interchangeability is very familiar, <laughs> uh, I think, to a lot of Asian American women. Um, and, and why was that also something you wanted to make a feature of this this book? Yeah, I remember having a conversation with my editor where she was like, wow, what a wild plot twist that um, the protagonist would be asked to impersonate another Asian woman who is you know, over a decade older than her, who looks nothing like her, who comes from a different ethnic background. And I was like, this is the most realist part of this <laughs> dystopian novel by far, right? Um, uh, Asian women exist in this horrible space where we're both hyper-visible and hyper-sexualized and yet, yes, interchangeable, seen as these sort of icons that can be swapped in and out. Um But in my conversations with the Asian women in my life, I'm always interested in that point in which the conversation turns. And once we get past sort of like the fury and the incredulity, we often end up laughing at how sort of ridiculous and how silly, right, these people who just cannot tell us apart are. And I was interested in that moment of reclamation that happens when humor is introduced. Um, Mm. And so I wanted this protagonist who, at the same time, while she is being forced to impersonate another Asian woman, she kind of is able to weaponize um, the 
the blindness of her employer and of this larger society against them, right? She literally uses it to win more money in her job. Um, she is able to use at times to play quite public jokes on people who, for example, believe that she is Korean and speaks Korean. Um, and I, I was interested in making that like complex too. Like how can you, you, you might be used in some ways, but how can you also sort of use your users as well? Um, it's not, it doesn't have to be as black and white. You don't have to sit back and play the victim. Yeah. Um, well, Noelle on Discord writes, while some can go to a lovely high-end restaurant with lots of people serving you, most people now have to order their food at a counter without wait staff. The contrast has gotten more stark the past three years. There is that reality there, but I guess what I'm sort of reading in Noelle's comment too is just, you know, when I think of, of her, your protagonist trying to wield power, right, and her invisibility and interchangeability as an Asian person, um, you also do bring in the invisibility of just kitchen laborers generally and her own, the protagonist sort of, I don't know, like also kind of managing that discomfort as well. And I'm just curious why that was important to you too, to include. Yeah, the, the protagonist certainly lives through many, many layers of invisibility in this world. Um, I don't know that there was like a particular point to it so much as it's just something I see in, when I dine out. And this was certainly true of some of my experiences in fine dining in San Francisco. I would watch certain types of patrons who came in and had no respect for the kitchen staff who would sort of cut them off as they spoke, um, who would sort of make their, their positions very uncomfortable. And that is just a fact of certain types of uh, clients at high fine dining restaurants but um to noel's point I, perhaps as well part of what i was trying to get out in the book is one of the ways in which our chef protagonist kind of um hmm, allows herself to be used is she is for the majority of the book cooking this fine french cuisine for the very wealthy and sort of only towards the middle or the end, does she really start to question the culinary values of the world in which she lives? And therefore, it's, it's larger values about race and about class and about who matters. Yeah. We're talking about a world plunge into darkness and food scarcity and how we respond as a society and also one particular unnamed Asian chef protagonist responds <laughs> with Si Pam Zhang. And through that process, learning a lot about what it is that we allow ourselves and deny ourselves in times of scarcity or deprivation. We'll have more with Pam after the break and with you, our listeners. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a new novel, Land of Milk and Honey, by my guest, C. Pam Zhang. The novel's premise is a world that is dark and scarce. Food is not bountiful. There's not much variety. How would you react to an apocalypse? apocalypse like this, listeners? Or what's a food or meal you would miss most if you lost it in the climate crisis or if you left California? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum by calling 866-733-6786. Zoe writes, I'd get a burrito (laughs) from Lupe's Place in La Cañada, California, this small Mexican restaurant at the end of a tiny block I used to live near. I'd go with my brother. It was our high school place. Lupe would tell me I'd go far someday. For La Cañada, she was a brighter spot. One season, one season, the salsa was so hot, it must have been the peppers, and I couldn't stop dousing my burrito in this salsa, the risk of it making the flavors so much brighter and bolder. Pam, I'm, I'm curious if you have felt anger or frustration at the climate crisis and the future that that uh, it suggests that could be bleaker than, you know, the life that we have now. There's this point in the book where the chef protagonist essentially talks about how, well, she says, the life we've been promised was a scam. The world a scam. The whole goddamn play a scam. And there seemed nothing to do but burn it down <laughs> as rioters did and then creep back through the embers because what other choice did we have? What other planet? And so it made me wonder at that point when I was reading that, if if you have wrestled with anger at the climate crisis, at this sort of tainted inheritance that younger generations have of a climate amid climate change. Oh, of course. I've been absolutely furious. And I think mm-hmm. it is important to acknowledge and and uh, and look at that fury. But at the same time, that passage, passage that you just read about the protagonist feeling that this entire endeavor is a scam, I think that represents one of her lowest points in the book. Um, but I don't think that anger is enough and that cynicism certainly isn't any kind of plan going forward. More and more these days, I do think that cynicism is a mark of immaturity. Um, hmm. It is, frankly, not it's not useful, right? And I used to be a, a younger cynic. I used to sort of sit back and roll my eyes and be like, nobody else can see what I'm seeing, that we're, we're all doomed. I'm sort of smarter and more perceptive than everyone else. But I, I really do think that... It's very scary looking into a future that feels so ambiguous, very scary reading all these headlines. But at the same time, going back to that earlier question, Mina, about hubris, right? There's the hubris of control and there's also the hubris of knowledge. I think that we can so easily fall into this form of hubris where we think that doom is preordained for our planet, that nothing will ever get better, that things will only go downhill from here. But we have to remember that what we don't know can also surprise us 
can delight us, what we don't know can also be kind of wondrous. And for this kind of optimism, I sort of look past humanity itself. Um, and I look at the planet because to me, the planet is so much more ancient and intelligent and powerful that we are. And it has proven time and again that it will survive and come back. And even if all human beings disappeared ourselves off the face of this earth, the earth will be just fine, right? Um, think of what happened when researchers released wolves back into Yellowstone. And not only did the wolves come back, but it changed sort of populations of deer and I believe caribou, which changed populations of plants on the riverbanks, which changed uh, the number of beavers that could come back, which in itself changed the way water flowed in that environment. We really don't know very much and the planet is capable of this immense power to surprise us. And I think we just kind of have to hold on to that as well. We can't fall into cynicism. Yeah. Um, you know, at the very beginning of your book, actually, you establish that the smog is gone at this point. The chef is looking back as an old woman from a world mm -hmm. without smog. So it's almost like you let us know very early that this there is a positive outcome, essentially, or that... <laughs> what what the chef goes through does in fact pass you know yeah um during the pandemic before writing this novel i was reading a number of biographies of women writers and artists and i think it was because i simply needed proof um that people could survive periods of you know heartbreak global war catastrophe and still come out the other side having endured and having made something artful that lasts um from it and I, I sort of set that kind of frame around this novel as well. Yeah. Well, let me go to caller Sally in San Jose. Hi, Sally. You're on. Hi there. Um, can you hear me okay? I can. Great. Yeah, um, I just uh, appreciate this conversation. I know I've missed part of it, but uh, and I loved what the previous caller said about the resiliency of the earth and Mother Nature. I think my comment is uh, having to do with human nature and um, the idea of Maslow's hierarchy of need, which I think over and over proves itself in terms of human nature, that when we are confronted uh, with great traumas, our, um, the Maslow's hierarchy of need says that at our basis level, we're looking at survival, um, where we, what we can eat and uh, then gradually, as each level is met, do we um, reach for a higher uh, fulfill fulfilling thing. So uh, when there's tragedies or um, great stress, we're kind of driven down to the survival level, which I think is even reflected in, our, in nationalism currently. So I think that the novel is really insightful in that way, and it's uh, kind of the balance um, between human nature and... Uh, Mother Nature, I guess we'd say, that I think the, that the question is very much up in the air, which one um, recovers first. Mm, yeah, Sally, I think you hit on so many of the, the messages of this particular book. Um, well, this listener writes, my favorite comfort food is hands down mac and cheese with Heinz 57 steak sauce and a heart attack inducing amount of butter. <laughs> But if I was stranded on a desert island with only one food choice, I would choose pizza 
with its never-ending variety <laughs> of iterations, it cannot be beat. I'm curious, Pam, if your relationship with food changed over the course of writing this or over, I mean, I think you do, you have talked about how it's changed over the course of your life, having grown up with very little and then also being exposed, especially to the tech world with food as art or food as viewed in its highest form in some cases as well. But, but just wondering if, you know, some of the realizations you had about what it means to you, the meal you had maybe with your doctor friend, if, if it affected your relationship with food at all. Yes and no. I think what's interesting is my my relationship with food in that what I fundamentally love and am drawn to did not change over the course of writing this novel. But I think what did change was my ability to own that and speak about it. Um, there was a tendency prior to writing this novel to orient my own tastes, maybe mm, orient is not correct, to sort of uh, ascribe points to my own tastes based on what is externally validated, right? For example, I would sort of pat myself on the back for loving some kind of fancy halibut dish at, at a Western European restaurant. But I would sort of sheepishly creep in and say, but I also love to eat sour cream and cheddar ruffles, right? That was like, a, we use this word, these words, right? That's like a guilty food. That's a comfort food. And I hear this in some of the delightful answer um, or listener responses that we're hearing yeah. today. But I think today, I'm in this place where I'm like, it's all food. You know, it was wonderful to have these Michelin-starred meals that sort of introduced me to the idea that food could be presented as and thought of as art. But now I look around, and I'm like, that form of artfulness exists just as much in street food, just as much in the sort of arcane magic of a, a factory-produced chip um, as it does in a, you know, $300 tasting menu. And I am just much... I just try not to let any food be guilt food. I try not to judge anything by any rubric other than do I like it? Is it bringing me something, whether, you know, actual nourishment and vitamins or just some kind of emotional nourishment at this point? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I appreciate your honesty in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I was struck by is your protagonists, your your chef's late mother in the book, was an awful cook. Mm. And I think the reason that I was so struck by this is because you wrote this piece in Esquire about how your late grandmother was also a bad cook. W was that in part why you made the the chef protagonist's mother an awful cook as well? Oh, that's interesting. So I wrote the piece in Esquire long after finishing this book, though I think this often happens when you write a novel. There are these subterranean emotions that you're working through in your own life that become clear only later. Um, but I do think it's it's so interesting because in my life, I know food fanatics, people who would call themselves gourmands. I know people who don't care about food. I have a family member who does sometimes drink Soylent, <laughs> in fact. <laughs> and I... I just find that kind of diversity fascinating. I find those kinds of conversations fascinating. So after your grandmother passed, you craved and sought the flavors of her cooking, even though she was a bad cook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because taste is emotional. There is no way to actually objectively say this food is better than that food, though the way that menus are priced and the way that dishes are valued, 
would try to make you think otherwise. But there is no objectiveness to food at all. For so much of us, food is time travel. Food is a way to access an earlier version of ourselves. Food is a way to connect to people who are very far away from us or perhaps no longer on this earth. And I think that acknowledging how deeply subjective the act of eating is makes this conversation much more open and honest. One of the other things that was on my mind when I was working on this novel was this question of why, for the most part, in most parts of America, would people be okay with the notion that a chicken dish in a French restaurant might cost $50 or $60, but many would balk at paying more than, say, $30 for a chicken dish at a Chinese restaurant, right? And so that difference in price is literally the difference between how much we value those two culinary cultures, how much we value those two cultures, period, how much we value the types of people who eat those types of cuisines, right? Um, and so there is a way in which value as defined on a menu in the dining world today is pretends to be objective. And it, it really simply is not. And I think the if we move forward with that assumption, um, it, it's, it leads to many more interesting conversations. I mean, remind listeners, you're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Let me go to caller Catherine in Menlo Park. Catherine, you're on. Hi, good morning. I was um, reminiscing about uh, my childhood and my mom. Uh, we grew up here in Northern California, and my mom made mixed pieces of avocado with mayonnaise and sprinkle on lemon juice, salt, and pepper, and put it in a bowl, and we would have a bunch of saltine crackers, and we would, and that would be like our little appetizer before dinner or something, and um, that was just like, that to me is still like a a lovely um, comfort, comforting memory um, uh, from, you know, long before we didn't eat out either, and um, so that was like a great little thing. And I so I still, it. my husband and I still love, um, avocados. Um, he's from Ohio, but, <laughs> um, we go to the farmer's markets and one of the, um, vendors that came up from the central coast, like the Cambria area, he, um, had the most wonderful avocados. And then with the, uh, heat wave, um, a few summers ago, he, uh, lost all his crop, for that year and then he told us he they wouldn't have avocados for three more years and in general it sounds like um, avocados in California are threatened by the uh, global climate change so it's very sad for me <laughs> but yeah yeah um, it is very sad though I guess in, in, in ways and I can hear Catherine just in you remembering that meal the, the joy that it gives you in your voice um I guess what heartens me a little bit, uh, Pam, is what you said earlier about how um, unknowability of the future or speculative fiction like this, that is dystopian, right, can suggest that, um, that yes, those type, types of losses will be greater in the future. But, but you were also saying that cynicism is sort of immature and that really in, in unknowability, there is the opportunity for for change and for yeah. a different future. Yeah, the question that occurs to me in my mouth was watering as Catherine described that dish. Um, 
The question for me is like, we should, it, of course, it's natural to grieve and mourn those avocados, and we should, we shouldn't push aside that kind of grief. But also, what is the next version of that dish, right? For the next three years, are, are you going to try a different ingredient in there? And what sort of new avenues might that open up as well? I think it's possible to hold both that kind of grief and that kind of interest, that kind of curiosity at the same time. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of next, after How Much of These Hills Was Gold, which for listeners who may not know was about like um, two Chinese-American kids who were basically dragging their father's rotting corpse around <laughs> in the <laughs> California gold rush. Anyone um, who was hungry no longer is. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was an incredible book. But I was struck by how you um, were concerned that you might be pigeonholed after the, the success of a book like that. What were you worried about being pinned down as? Um, I, you know, what's really funny is like, I wrote a retelling of an American, a reimagined American Western and ever afterwards, people were convinced that I was one, an expert on Westerns and to love all Westerns. <laughs> like I was recently asked very kindly to write an introduction to a, 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 a sort of cult classic Western I hadn't read. And I was like, thank you very much. But the idea that for the rest of my life, I will continue being asked to read Westerns, opine on Westerns, <laughs> and only talk about Westerns feels a little bit like death. <laughs> um, again, love certain Westerns, but I just think that um, for me, there is no sort of guarantee in literary writing that anyone will ever read what you're going to write. And so you can only fundamentally a baseline write for yourself. And what that means to me is to write things that I'm curious about, write things that feel new to me, write things that feel challenging and exciting rather than doing the same sort of type of writing over and over again. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if you are working on something else that you want to hint about right now. Oh, I am working on something else. Uh, what I can say about it is it is, again, very, very different. And I think it's going to be a, a, a quite sprawling work. So we'll we'll see what form it takes. I've sort of uh, torn up the first couple of pages, maybe 10 or 20 times, and it's very exciting. Well, excited to hear another exploration of new terrain from you, Pam. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Mina. This was very fun. And congratulations on Land of Milk and Honey. Caroline Smith produced today's segment. Form was also produced by Mark Nieto. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. And Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Christopher Beal, Brian Douglas, Catherine Monahan. Our interns are Jericho Reininger and Emiko Oda. Ethan Tobin Lindsay and Chief Content Officer Holly Kernan are Forum's leaders. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.